Good evening. We're hopping right in tonight. Man, I missed a chance to get to preach this a week ago because I was sitting up at the house with half my voice gone and uh, some sickness going on. So thankfully, James stepped in uh, in my, my moment of sickness and weakness and preached to, uh, to us and to me. So I'm thankful for that. And, but because of that, I had a little message ready. And so when pastor's flight was delayed, there was a beautiful opportunity for um, some rest for pastor, hopefully this afternoon. If you didn't get the rest, well, shame on you, pastor, because <laughs> hopefully the moment was there. But also maybe there was just some kids awake. So hopefully there was an opportunity for some rest and some sleep. Um, we hope so. Um, but I'm thankful that there was um, there was purpose, I think, in God giving me the time to work on what he was saying to me um, last week. Because it takes a little while for it to get through to me. So uh, he knew I needed that time, if nothing else. And he's in control. Um, man, I better be careful saying shame on pastor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back now. I'm about to get rebuked a bunch. Guys, y'all look out for me after the service. Um, we want to look at Philippians chapter 1. And I want to... As you know, I want to digest a whole chapter, right? But, you know, I'm trying to learn a few things and just look closely at a few parts, but I'm still going to surf through the whole chapter, so just be prepared for that. Um, but I want to focus, first of all, in the last part, um, Philippians chapter 1. And Paul is saying this to the church at Philippi. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. And I'll pray as we start. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Lord. I'm just thankful for these letters that you've placed in scripture that are good for us. These letters that you placed in scripture to churches that needed the message at the time and yet also for us who would need the message later. And we know that there will be generations after, Lord, as long as you tarry, that will also continue to need this message, this truth, your word. And I pray, Father, that as you open this up to us today, Lord, that you would speak to us where we are and help, Lord, your, the seed of your word and your truth to take root in us so that it can grow up in us and bear fruit in us. Lead me and speak to me and through me. Um, and speak to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I told uh, Ted this, this, this afternoon, I said, I think the, the title should be Heavenly Joy and Earthly Things, but I'm going to change one word, Ted, so I said I'd let you know, and I didn't let you know before. Heavenly perspective. Heavenly perspective in earthly things. Um, but you can slip the word joy in there if you want to. But heavenly perspective in earthly things. 
I actually was thinking this afternoon about my brother when I was growing up. So I, I am uh, the third of four boys, right? So then I have one younger brother, and I have two older, and I am uh, fairly in the middle. And if you think about how things fall out, I, I basically am your classic middle, middle son, um, which is not a good experience for my brothers growing up and wasn't necessarily the best experience for me growing up. But in that, I had an older brother, and um, Justin and I were pretty close, right? And we were pretty close in age. We were the closest in age. We had almost two years separating us, and there was a few more years between him and the older brother and a few more years between me and the younger brother. Um, I don't know why I'm giving you all that detail, because you don't need all that background for what I'm sharing. But uh, we had some books in the house uh, called Magic Eye Books. Have you ever ever seen some magic eye? A few of us remember this, and I may have talked about this in the past. Uh, Also, it's something that usually they had in dentist's office, I think, because they often had them up on the wall, a big picture, and you're like, what is that? Some, okay, modern art. Um, Because it's a picture that usually doesn't make any sense, right? It's just a bunch of colors splotched all over um, in some sort of a pattern, usually. Um, But you look at it and you go, what is this supposed to mean? Is, there, you know, is this just modern art? Um, but then you find out, okay, it's how you look at it. And there's a way when you look at it that an image within the picture, a 3D image starts to come out, right? And there's depth there. And then there's something in the foreground. And it may be um, maybe a shark, right? Um, which would be really scary if that's in a dentist's office because you're going to go get your teeth looked at and whatever. But whatever it is, there's an image in there. And in our book, I remember just we had several things. There was a teddy bear. There was a heart one. You know, so you turn the page, and you look at it for a while, and the image comes into perspective. Problem was, my brother Justin would always see it, and he'd be like, yeah, there's the heart right there. There's the butterfly right there. Okay, there's, there's a teddy bear right there. And I would look at it, and I'm not seeing any teddy bear, and I'm not seeing any heart. I'm not seeing any butterfly. I'm not seeing any of that. All I see is this image that doesn't make any sense. Justin had a natural ability to just look at it and see it. And it took me some years. It wasn't until I was grown that finally I was able to, okay, you, okay, you got to look at it and kind of look for, look for the reflection in the back. Okay, look for something to reflect off the page. Maybe use a bit of glass in front of it, and then you'll see behind you. And that way, it, your eyes are looking further for distance. And then now you'll see the image that will just kind of pop out. And it took me some years, and I got there. And it was a joyous day, guys. I got so excited when I got to that point. I was like, man, I see it. It's exciting when you see something that you didn't see before. Something that was there all along, right? But something that you didn't see before that others could see. And I believe that there's a bit of that going on in the book of Philippians as Paul writes to the Philippian church. Zooming in on verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And so I want to use that to kind of guide um, my points as we go along because Paul is talking about this idea of a conflict, a conflict that he has had, a conflict that he has, and a conflict that he sees them having as well. So I believe when I look at this, I see really three different conflicts. A conflict that Paul has had that they saw. A conflict that Paul has currently that they're hearing about. And a conflict that they are having or will have. So I want to begin, first of all, um, 
with Paul's present conflict. Paul's present conflict. And I believe he's telling us about it in Philippians chapter one. So now here's where I get to serve through um, some of the rest of the chapter, guys. Um, So with this, Paul is writing um, to these Philippians and he's in a certain condition. He's, um, and I believe what we would call a house arrest. He is waiting the full outcome of his series of trials. Um, And while he's in this holding pattern, he is not a free man, right? So he's writing what we would call a prison epistle. And so he's writing from prison. This is a conflict that they know that he is in. It's a present conflict for Paul as he is writing this letter. Actually, somebody else is probably writing it for him, and he's probably dictating it to them. So he's in that situation, and the Philippian church has heard about it. They've heard about it. They've heard about it because they've actually sent um, one of their own, Epaphroditus, to Paul to minister to him in this time, in this time of need, in this time of conflict. They've heard about that. And so Paul is writing in the midst of that. And I believe, to me, that's what I'm attaching when he says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be, here to be in me. If not, at least there's some conflicts that they have seen in Paul's life. And so that's really um, what I want to, to point out here. And the one that they're seeing right now is that Paul is in prison waiting these trials as he is on trial being accused um, by Jews about the message that he's been giving and the fact that they see he's out of line, they see him as out of line, and they want him to be dealt with. Um, so Paul has been appealing, and I believe this point is after he has appealed to Caesar, and he's waiting to go to Caesar, and so he's going to be in this holding place for some time. So in Philippians chapter 1, I want to jump uh, down after his greeting. Um, actually, I'll read a little bit from, from before then. In the beginning, he talks about how he thanks God upon every remembrance of them in verse 3. And that just stands out to me because he's not thinking about himself in the middle of this trial. He's thinking about something bigger, right? He's looking at something bigger that's going on. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Right? So he's making requests with joy in the middle of this situation. So there's something, a different way in which he's interacting with the situation that he's in. And it may seem a little bit out of place to be in a bit of joy while in prison. Um, But he says in verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. This is appropriate. It's appropriate for me to be thinking this way of you all, because I have you in my heart. And so that's cool to me, standing out about Paul and what he's thinking about and his state of mind as he's there um, in prison. But... Verse 12 is now what I want to jump down to. He says he knows the situ- that they are aware of his situation because they've already sent someone to provide for his situation. And so now he's going to talk about that. Verse 12, he says, but I would ye should understand. When you talk about understanding, he wants them to know something. He wants them to know something that maybe he feels like they don't know or maybe they are at risk of not remembering or just not fully understanding in the moment. I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, the conflict that he's in, the difficult that he's in, the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather. They've happened, they've occurred, they've fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. The things that I'm going through are actually furthering the gospel. That's what he's saying here. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. 
And there's a little bit like, to me, almost like a play on words there, so that my bond's in Christ. One, he considers himself a prisoner for Christ, right? And so he considers himself bound to preach the gospel, and so there's that. But then there's also the fact that he is literally bound in prison for what he has been preaching, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. People are hearing about what Paul is going through. Not just the Philippian church, but other people are hearing about what Paul is going through. As a matter of fact, those in the palace, Paul has guards around him. They are also witnessing what is going on in his situation. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places and many other brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. And now he's talking about his situation specifically as he's in prison. He can't go about and preach like he used to. And he used to go to a new town, maybe preach in the synagogue and share the gospel to the Jews who are in that town or share the gospel to the Gentiles in the community or share the gospel with the whole town. He is not free and at liberty to do that. And so while he is in bond, is in these bonds, many of the brethren in the Lord, he says, they are waxing confident by my bonds and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So with Paul being in prison, and as he is in some sense shut up, quieted up, he cannot proclaim in the way that he used to, there are others, other believers, who are much more bold. He says here, many of the brethren in the Lord. So these are brethren in the Lord. These are believers. Brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold. They've been emboldened as Paul has been suffering. They've been emboldened as Paul is in this conflict. They are now going out more and more to preach. He says something about this. Much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're not afraid. A fear has been removed for them. And they're going forth. He says, some indeed, and this is where it gets interesting. Some, so now he's about to basically make two groups. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. That's a little odd. How do you preach Christ of envy and strife? To be honest, I wrestle with understanding this, and I don't fully understand here. There are some that think and would say that, his, that they're, they're preaching the gospel of envy and of strife is maybe they were envious of Paul and Paul's some sense like growing status as a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel. And so as Paul is in the foreground, they're like, well, he's, we envy his, his, his status in, as a preacher of the gospel. But now he's shut up. And so now they're like, okay, it's my opportunity now. It's my opportunity to take the podium. It's my opportunity now to take the stand. It's my opportunity now to preach out in the community. It's my opportunity now to preach in the synagogue. And they take that opportunity. Their fears are moved because Paul is now shut up. Um, so I think there is that probably that going on. There's also possibly, as Paul has been preaching, there have been some who have a slightly different way of preaching, if I would put it this way. Um, some believers who questioned the way that Paul taught, especially about um, not needing to follow certain Jewish customs. And to me, it's also very likely that some of what's going on there is Paul's been announcing, he's been a great proclaimer of the gospel and of the truth. But then as he's done that, right, and he's a, gen, he, he's a Jewish believer and proclaimer of the truth, 
And yet he's giving a message to Gentiles that they're not quite comfortable with and they wanna make some changes here or there. And they want to address some things that they would preach differently. And there may be a little bit of envy and strife in what's going on in the messages that they're preaching. They're preaching Christ, but there's a bit of a rub. Whatever the situation that's going on, there are some who that he calls brethren in the Lord who indeed preach Christ. They're preaching Christ, but they're preaching him of envy and of strife. And this to me would be a troubling situation. Then he goes and he talks about another group. He says, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They know that in some sense, this is gonna bother Paul. Supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other, those that are preaching of goodwill, praise the Lord, others of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So in other words, this other group of people that are preaching are also preaching of love. And so what motivates them is this love for the gospel and this love of Paul, and they're knowing that Paul is set in this situation where he's in prison because of the gospel, and how much more then should they get out and proclaim that same gospel that Paul is in prison for? So you got those two groups, and it's like, what do I do with this? So Paul says what he's going to do, and I think this is really what he wants the the Philippian church to understand. He says, what then? What am I going to do with this? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, those who are preaching of envy and strife, of contention, not sincerely, adding affliction to his bonds, whether in pretense or in truth, those who are preaching in love, those who are preaching because Paul is set for the defense of the gospel and they're right there with him. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and I therein do rejoice and will rejoice. Paul is found in the middle of the situation that is not entirely like desirable. Reason to rejoice. And he says, I will rejoice in that because Christ is preached. There is a reason to rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. People are hearing the gospel. Now, I think it's also important to state here that they're hearing the gospel. This is not the same thing as somebody who's going out and they're saying that they're preaching Christ and they're saying some things that they say call scripture, but they're not preaching the truth and they're not preaching the gospel and they're not preaching Christ. That is not what Paul says here. He says they are preaching Christ. So we, we must be clear about that. Their motive may be corrupted, but the message that they're preaching of the gospel is at least true. He says, I rejoice that they are preaching, that Christ is preached, and so I will rejoice in that. But then he goes on, and he talks about his situation particularly, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Keep that word salvation in mind. This shall turn to my salvation. How is it going to turn? Through your prayer and and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This situation that I'm in is going to turn. And it's turning, it's going to turn through your prayer and the supply of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at work, and I also know that you, my fellow believers, are praying for me and with me. And he says, how is it going to turn? Also, according, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation. Paul has an expectation. Paul, what's your expectation? He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. One, he's knows, he knows and he does not expect to be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed. But that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified. 
Paul's expectation is that Christ will be magnified. And look at how. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In this conflict that he's in, he doesn't know for sure that he will come out alive, right? And with that, he says, my expectation, my hope, my full expectation is that this is going to be for the magnification of Christ. Whether it's life for me or death for me, either way, my expectation is Christ is magnified. That's quite a perspective. Because what Paul is saying is he sees and his hope is that if he dies or if he lives, Christ will be magnified. And he calls that indeed my salvation. Because when he spoke in verse 19, he says, I know this shall turn to my salvation. And under salvation, he puts my life or my death. That's how Paul is seeing. That his death or his life, both would be his salvation. Because God's in control. This is Paul's present conflict. And in this present conflict, right, that he is going through, Paul is rejoicing that Christ is preached and Paul is aware and certain that his salvation is being worked in this. Whether he dies on earth and in his body or whether he continues to live. That's a perspective I want us to hold on to and that Paul wants this Philippian church to hold on to because he says again, pointing back to verse 30, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Now let me back up some because that's Paul's present conflict, but I want to go to Paul's past because there is more. This is not the only conflict that the Philippian church has seen Paul in. It's not the only one. So I want to turn now to Acts 16. Acts 16. And I'm not going to read all of this, but there's a bunch, okay. Um, in Acts 16, this is where Paul goes to the Philippian church. So this is where he goes to Philippi, right? And when he goes there, he actually, in, in the beginning, did not set out to go to Philippi. As a matter of fact, let me pull out my other Bible over here so I can have a couple of, couple of Bibles out. Um, but if we look at Acts chapter 16, this is, I believe, after Paul has done his first missionary trip and he's gone out um, with Barnabas. And then they're like, okay, well, let's go now. And Paul says in, in chapter 15, let's go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached and see how they are doing. But we, we may be aware of how that worked out. Paul gets with Barnabas. They're like, yeah, we took a trip. Let's go back now. And let's check out, check out all those churches and just affirm the work that they're doing. Let's check on them. But before they go, they have this disagreement. Barnabas then sets out with Mark and Paul sets out with Silas. So that's, that's kind of the, the circumstance in which Paul is heading back out. He was going to visit the churches that he had already visited. But now I think really Barnabas more visits some of those churches and Paul hits up some different locations. So Acts chapter 16 um, talks about then that journey that he took. But at first he didn't intend to take that, that journey. As a matter of fact, as he set out on his way, in, in this journey now that he has a new partner, Silas, they intended to go to certain locations, but they were stopped. The spirit suffered them not to go. And then they find out through, um, I believe it is a vision that Paul, Paul has, that there's a man of Macedonia saying, come, preach to us. Right, Macedonia, keep that in mind, Macedonia would be a Greek area. So this man is asking Paul in this vision, 
to come and preach in this Greek area. Well, Philippi is a Greek city, right? It's named for Philip of Macedonia, who would be, I believe, Alexander the Great's father, right? So it's named after him, this Greek king. So it's, it's quite a quick key city to the Greeks, but not just to the Greeks. Um, this city has become uh, kind of a, from what I understand, a uh, retirement area for some Roman soldiers. So it's become a very Romanized Greek city. Um, so much so that they are now in a position where Rome has basically said, this Greek city is going to be as Rome is. They're going to have a status like Romans. That's a big thing because it's not common for people who are not Romans by birth to have status as Roman citizens. And so this whole town gets really that provision. Philippi does. And so that's where Paul comes to them. And so hopping into um, later, lower into uh, chapter 16, when they start to go there, it says, um, I think a verse, I can't remember what verse I'm in. I think it's verse 11. I didn't mark my verses in this uh, passage that I copied and pasted. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came to a straight, with a straight course to, and I'm not going to say that city name, and the next day to Neapolis and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And while they're there certain days, they go to preach. But when they go to preach, they don't go to the synagogue because they seem to not have a synagogue there, which means there's probably not a lot of Jews there. It's mostly a Gentile place, right? But he does find um, the, these believers who, or these people who go to pray, these women really, who go to pray um, by the water. So then they go and speak with them. And it says, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us saying, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So like they've been kind of traveling and they don't really have a place to stay. And she's like, well, I have a large house. You can um, hang out here and you can go and continue to preach um, in our town. So that's what they do. And it says, and it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her master's much gain by soothsaying. And we know what happens in this situation. She's coming around and she's following them. And she's saying, these guys are preaching the gospel. These guys are preachers of Christ. But she is possessed of a devil. And the guys that are following her are really just making use of her for the money that she can bring them for the things that she says. And this troubles Paul so much so that he rebukes the spirit and has the spirit come out of her. Well, when Paul does that, that's a problem because these guys, their way of making money is now gone. So here's where there's another conflict. We had Paul's present conflict in the letter as he was writing. Now we get Paul's past conflict. We're looking back. We've gone now back in time when he goes to establish his church at Philippi. And before he's establishing her, as he's in the work of establishing this church at Philippi, he rebukes the spirit that's in this girl. She comes out. And then now he, that puts him in conflict with the men that were making money by her. And what do they do? Jumping down in the passage. And it says, and when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, no more money to be made. They caught Paul and Silas. That word caught. All righty. That's, that's not a gentle, gentle catching. They take them, right? And they manhandle them. They says they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace. They drag them in front of everybody. So the town is seeing this. This is something that's public, this conflict. 
drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, these men, and in my, in my mind, I kind of see them having them by the, by like the cuffs of their shirt, or maybe they just got them pinned by the arms, but they've handled these guys and brought them in. These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being <clears throat> Romans. So they're appealing to that status that they have, right, as Romans, this whole town. We're Romans. These things that they're teaching go against what should be good for us. So they're seeing them as less than. And what they're saying and declaring as less than. And they're attacking that. And in this conflict, what happens? The whole multitude rises up and they beat them. This is a public beating. So likely, as Paul's now writing the letter to the church at Philippi, some people were there that would remember this, or at least that heard about this. Right? This was a public thing. So they beat them and then they threw them into the prison. And the jailer kept them there in the prison. But you know what happens in the story? Right? As they're in the prison, it says, At midnight, Paul and Silas, they prayed and they sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And it's not only the prisoners that hear about this, right? Because this story of what happens in this prison, the others, believers in the town, will hear about. At Philippi, people that Paul has been preaching the gospel to, they hear about this conflict. And they hear about then Paul, how Paul responds. What's his perspective? His perspective is one where, honestly, if I were Paul, I would have looked at the situation and said, well, they treated me like I wasn't a Roman. I am a Roman, and I'm a Roman by birth. But they accused me of teaching things that were not good for Romans to do. These guys who are, a lot of them, not Roman by birth. And I'd be, if I were sitting there as Paul, I'd be like, well, let me check out my legal rights because there are some things that I should set them straight on because several things that they did wrong, and I could get them in big trouble. But that's not what Paul's doing at midnight. What Paul is doing at midnight is he's praying and he's singing praises unto God and the prisoners hear him. And that's the thing that turns us, that turns us around, I think, to the point that when God sends the earthquake and the whole prison's opened up, it's not like they look at that situation and go, well, here's what we were praying for. Let's run. They don't run. They stay. And not just them, but all the prisoners stay because there was something different, a different deliverance that they were looking for. Because if they were looking for the earthly deliverance, they would have walked out once the prison's, prison was opened. They didn't go. They stayed. That's interesting to me. And we know the story, the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself, and Paul says, hold up, because we're all here. And this guy then becomes one who also comes to believe, and his whole house is baptized, and they believe. And it's very likely that they're in this church that Paul is writing to as he's writing to the church at Philippi. The conflict which you have heard in me, but also the, that you've seen. The Philippian jailer was there as Paul was thrown in. He was there when Paul remained in that prison. He was there when Paul was, was singing and praising. This conflict that they have seen. And in this situation too, Paul finds reason to rejoice in the middle of difficulty. Now, I don't exactly know how Paul sees this one in the middle of it, but I would say his perspective is clearly different than a normal perspective because he doesn't look to his natural rights. He looks to the situation and he says, I'm going to be praying and I'm going to be singing praises. Maybe in that, in, that, in that prison, his praises were praying like, okay, God, I don't really understand what you're doing, but I know that you're at work. And he's working his way to understanding and receiving what God has done and the hand that God has dealt him or the cup that God has handed him. 
Maybe in it, he's like, I know this is where I should be. So I'm really thankful. And he's proclaiming that gospel through song in the middle of that prison, right? And so maybe then it's just really a demonstration of his full perspective that he already has. He doesn't really have to wrestle to get there. Maybe that's the case. But whatever the situation, he is pointing himself to a heavenly perspective, not to an earthly one. Because when the earthly situation changes, he doesn't run. He stays and he is able to proclaim the gospel again. Now that's Paul's past conflict. But then he says, again, pointing our attention back to verse 30 of Philippians chapter 1, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Both times, whether it was his situation of being thrown in jail, was for the proclamation of the gospel and his work that he was doing, because they didn't just attack the fact that he freed the girl from the spirit. They said they're they're teaching customs that are not right for us to follow. They didn't like what he was teaching. And in the second one, where he's now in prison and he's appealed to Caesar, but he's waiting to find out. So as he's writing this letter, he's in a present conflict. Both times it's for the gospel. But he says, that's not just for me. You too will have the same conflict which you saw in me. So now I want to go to the Philippians or our present or coming conflict. We may not be in the situation that Paul is in directly. And the Philippians, as they're reading this letter, may not be exactly in the same situation that Paul is in, but it's, we're in similar situations. This Philippian church is going through similar things, right? They are where, they're in the town where Paul was thrown into jail for teaching customs that were wrong. That doesn't just go away after Paul leaves the town. These believers are continuing to face points of conflict and difficulty. And in that, Paul is letting them know, you saw me have the same thing. You saw me go through similar things. And with that, I want you now looking above verse 30. Verse 27, let your conversation be, let your lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, just like I did. My conversation became the gospel of Christ. My conversation fit with what the gospel of Christ says. My conversation saw the gospel of Christ over my circumstances. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or else I be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. So Paul is encouraging them. You saw my example. You saw my example when I was in your town. You saw what I went through. Right. For the jailer, you may have like put me in those bonds. Right. You saw it. He's also telling them, you hear right now what I'm going through. You hear right now because you've sent this guy Epaphroditus to take care of my situation while I'm in prison to provide for me because you cared for me. So you know what I'm going through right now. And he says, I also know what you're going through. I also know what's coming for you in some sense, that there is conflict. And with that, there is coming difficulty for you. There is difficulty that you are in. Let your conversation be as it becomes Christ, as fits a believer in the Lord. And that is what Paul then is saying to us. But with that, what I am drawn to in this passage is that Paul's eyes are on God to the point that he says, you know what, I see my salvation written here. In all these circumstances that outwardly look like they're bad, I see salvation written here. That this situation that, sure, there's physical trouble. Sure, there's physical difficulty. Sure, there is a bit of a difficult circumstance when people are preaching Christ for wrong motives. 
I see my salvation written here, that whether I live or die, Christ is magnified. That's perspective. That's heavenly perspective. And so as I bring now this toward a close and a bit of a application, do we pray and do we rejoice with heavenly perspective in our earthly conflicts? Do you pray? Do you rejoice? Have you decided and settled that you therein will rejoice because you see your salvation, you see Christ and the gospel written over the circumstances that we are in? And you can see it, just like that magic eye, that maybe you see the same circumstances that everybody else is seeing, but you can see through it now to a bigger image, a bigger purpose, the real reason that God has drawn this picture for you. Do we know and do we see God's truth in the middle of the trouble? Sometimes when we look at our earthly situation, we don't really see, and it's hard to see, the salvation that God has written into it. Because we see death. Or maybe because we see life. And we're distracted by the death or by the life from seeing salvation, which is written above it. The gospel, Christ, which is written above it. That is going to work in the middle of this life or that is going to work in the middle of this death. That must be our earnest expectation and our hope. Our earnest expectation and our hope that in all of these things, whether by life or by death, Christ is magnified. How do we see in that way? I see a bit of a a connection to um, to the fact that we have to see God at work and not myself. I have to see God at work and not myself. For Paul in prison, he's singing and he's he's praising and he's praying because he's looking to God, he's not looking to himself. I have to also see God at work and not myself. I see it similarly to a situation in my house where um, we have a fridge and we have some cupboards in our kitchen. And when I go and I look at that situation, sometimes I don't see life. I open the fridge and I stand there. It's going to be a hungry day because I don't see lunch in there. I don't see dinner in there. It's not there. When I look at the circumstances, it's not there. And so I shut up the fridge and I walk on because I don't know what to do with that. And that's kind of how our earthly situations are sometimes. There is not much that we can do with them. But I don't get sad anymore. I shut up that fridge and I'm like, I don't know how that's working out. But I have a miracle worker in the house, right? I have somebody in the house who can make a way out of no way, as they say. Right? So when I open that fridge and I close it up because I don't see a way, there's somebody else in my house, thankfully, who can open up that fridge and who can see a way. Where I saw no lunch, where I saw no dinner, man, oh man, there's just a, <laughs> right, that goes on in that kitchen and I can just wait and I can see that circumstance turn around. Not because anything was different, it was already there. But what I could do nothing with, somebody, could do a whole lot. 
God takes Paul's circumstance where he's in a prison and he turns it into a situation where he establishes a church. God takes Paul's circumstance where Paul is in prison again and he can't proclaim the gospel as he was feeling inclined to do and called to do. And others are preaching and some of them for not good motives. And he turns that to magnifying Christ. The circumstances didn't necessarily change, but it's God at work in the circumstances. And God needs to be able to walk into the kitchen of all of our lives and open up the fridge of all of our lives and find there the meal that we couldn't make and that we couldn't create. And he's glorifying himself. His salvation is written over that situation. And when I see that, I can rejoice. Just like I rejoice when my miracle worker, Abby, walks into that kitchen and makes a meal out of something that I'm like, I don't know where that came from, but that was in there somewhere. Praise the Lord. There is praise for God. See him at work. Let him work in the circumstances that are in your life, whether you see life in those circumstances, whether you see death in those circumstances, whether you experience life in those circumstances or you experience death in those circumstances, it's all working for the magnification of Christ. And therein, we should rejoice. I'm gonna pray as we close. Father, we thank you very much, Lord, for your word. And not just your word as written in, but as your word as lived out in our lives, that we know that you are at work in our circumstances. And Father, a lot of us have different, quote unquote, fridges in our lives where we have circumstances going on that we may not know what to do with them. But Lord, you are in our house and you are at work in our lives and in our circumstances. And the things, the circumstances that you've brought about, we may not know what to do with them, but you do. And so Father, I pray that you would cause for our eyes to look up and have heavenly perspective in these earthly things and let you work and rejoice because we know that you are at work and that you are preparing our salvation in Christ's magnification. Lord, let this word and this truth settle in our hearts and be lived out in us, Lord, such that even as others see the conflicts in our lives, they may also see what the Philippian church saw when they looked at Paul a consistent conversation and example of a heavenly perspective. May others see a consistent example of a heavenly perspective in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.